But thank you, Lisa, for being willing to share your story with us. Um, and it's a story of redemption like that that we are all offered. We're, we're offered that kind of love. We're offered that kind of relationship. We're offered that kind of joy in Christ. And so, so if this place will be about anything, we want it to be about the offer of the grace of Jesus to, to everyone who would come through these doors. Um, but let's pray and open up the word of God. Uh, Father, you're good. Thank you for redeeming Lisa and for redeeming us. Thank you for your salvation and your forgiveness and that we can have this relationship with you and know you. Thank you for putting that hunger in our hearts for you that can only be satisfied with you so that we're always looking for more. And Father, I just pray that today, if we're looking for that more anywhere else but in Jesus, that you redirect all of our thoughts and all of our, our appetites toward Christ and help us to taste and see that the Lord is good today. Help us to believe and help us to, to be changed by that. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in John chapter one today. We're finishing up four weeks of looking at the word of God that became flesh, the incarnation of Jesus that we celebrate every year at Christmas time. And so let's read our passage. This is John one, starting in verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the father's side, he has made him known. In the Old Testament, God had told his people to build a tabernacle or a tent for worship. And it was a portable worship center that they would carry around with them. And at times, what's described as the glory of God would come and cover it and fill it. And in Exodus chapter 40, starting in verse 34, this happens. It says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So at this tabernacle, God would come and be present with his people in a unique way. He would lead his people with his glory. He would show up in a pillar of fire, or a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And his glory there was majestic. It was frightening. And at times, because of the thickness of that glory, Moses couldn't even enter into that tent where the glory was. And this glory was so important to the people that, that at one point, Moses even said to God, unless your presence goes with us, I don't want to move. Don't let us move anywhere. We don't want to go anywhere without you. We don't want to go anywhere where that glory isn't nearby. And there was a time in Exodus 33 where this happened in verse 18. It says, Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And he said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. 
So God would come be among his people in this glory cloud. He would dwell with his people in the tabernacle in that cloud. And it was terrifying. It was bright. It was holy. You couldn't look at his face and live. And then we get to the New Testament in the passage that we just read in John chapter 1. And John is describing Jesus as the word who became flesh to dwell among us. And he says in verse 14 again, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. When it says that he dwelt among us, that word dwelled is, is actually the Greek word for tabernacle or tent. So it's literally saying that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In Jesus, we see the glory of God. Jesus is like the new tabernacle and the glory of God comes and rests on him. The glory of of God in our day is not connected to a place. The glory of God doesn't come and fill a tabernacle. It doesn't fill a church building in the same way that it would have filled that tabernacle in the Old Testament. And as grand as this place is, and as beautiful as it is, and as God glorifying as the beauty of the place is, this place is not the place where his glory ultimately rests. Ultimately, it rests on Jesus. And the place that we see most clearly the glory of God is in Jesus who came to dwell among us. As amazing as the glory of God was in the tabernacle, we look at the baby in the manger, the word become flesh, and in him we see the glory of God. And this is something that humankind has been on a quest for since the beginning. If you remember the the story of scripture is at the beginning, we sinned and we got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. We were banished from the presence and the glory of God but we were made for that presence. So on the one hand, we were kicked out and we couldn't go near because he was too holy. But on the other hand, we were always hungry for it because we were meant to know his leadership. We were meant to know his love. We were meant to know his acceptance. But now our sin keeps us away and we can't look on his face. And so since the Garden of Eden, we we almost have like a love-hate relationship with the glory of God. We love it because we need it. And all of those desires we have for fulfillment and love that we look for in all the wrong places find their ultimate and true fulfillment in him. But we also hate that thing we need because it shows how sinful we are, because he's so holy. It's terrifying to be in his presence when we've been so against him. But then we get to the New Testament and then it says the word is made flesh. And that's where we see God's glory. That's the place where the glory of God that we can approach is. So how does this work? How do we see his glory in the fact that he became flesh? Well, for one, we see how glorious God is in that he would even choose to come and dwell among us in the first place. Think of how absolutely incredible that is, that God came and dwelt among us after what we had done. We made such a mess of the whole place. All of humanity was so dehumanized by our sin. The knowledge of who God is has been hidden to our eyes by our own blindness and also even by the scheming of evil spirits. We were totally deserving of God's condemnations for our sins and failures. And we were in such a sorry state that anyone would say that God would be well within his rights to wash his hands of the whole thing and walk away. But instead... Our helpless condition didn't cause God to recoil from us and reject us in disgust and in anger. Our helpless condition provoked his love for us. It was our huge need that caused him to come down to us in Christ and to look at that is to see his glory. 
This is why John asks, what manner of love is this? Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. What kind of love must there be in God that that he sees us in such such a terrible state? And that stirs him up to leave his comforts, to set aside the use of some of his attributes of deity so he could come to us. What a glorious God he is. How full of love must God be to do that? So it's almost like John is saying, yeah, that glory of God in the tabernacle, that was a big deal. It was good. It was amazing. It was, it was terrifying. But what we have in Jesus is an even bigger deal. I mean, soon he'll say that from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. And literally it's grace instead of grace. So it's like he looks at the Old Testament and he says, wow, what a gracious God that he would come in his glory and lead his people and teach his people and be present with his people in his tabernacle. But then when the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, we got grace instead of grace. That was gracious before, but what we have now is so far above that. We have the good news of the the incarnation, that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, added to himself humanity without surrendering anything that made him deity, He became fully human in every way, but was always without sin. He never gave up his deity, but fully took on humanity. So we look at that and we see his glory. We see his glory in that he dwelled among us. And we also see his glory in the fact that he's full of both grace and truth. Again, verse 14, he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's good news that Jesus is full of truth. Jesus comes to bring truth to the ignorant. He comes to show us what's true. He came to be truth. Jesus is the truth that makes sense of everything. We go through our human experience and we ask ourselves these questions like, why is the world so broken? Why does it seem like things are not the way that they should be? Why do I feel this sense of guilt and unworthiness? Well, the story of Jesus and the words of Jesus make sense of all that. When we look at the perfection of Jesus, it it shows us all that compared to him, we all do fall short. So the reason that we feel guilty and unworthy is that we're not all that we should be. The miracles of Jesus show us that the world is not what it should be. It should be better than it is. It should be fixed. So Jesus came absolutely full of truth. And to look at the whole world through the lens of Jesus makes sense of the world. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And maybe you're here today and you say, I don't believe any of this stuff, but you do get the sense that things aren't what they should be. You do get the sense that there's got to be more to life than this, that I'm made for a connection with someone or something higher. Well, my challenge to you would be, read a portion of the Bible. Maybe read the book of Matthew or the book of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, just steal one out of one of our pews or chairs around you. Um, take that home with your, your head held high and, and read those books and see if the story of Jesus doesn't resonate with your heart. See if that story doesn't just ring true. See how much sense Jesus makes of the world. Do yourself the favor of spending maybe just a little bit of time every morning reading this story of Jesus and just see if that doesn't ring true with your heart. Because he came to us full of truth.
Now that truth alone is not all good news. Because obviously we compare ourselves to, to perfect Jesus and we don't measure up. We see things about ourselves that we don't want to see. We see that we fall short. We see our sinfulness. We see that we're worthy of wrath and punishment, which isn't great news. You want a doctor who will tell you the truth about your condition, but you also want a doctor who can cure your condition. Well, the good news is that Jesus is also full of grace. And that's where the cure is. There's another time where God showed his glory to Moses in the Old Testament. And listen to how God describes himself in this passage. This is Exodus 34, verse 5. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So on the one hand, you have a God who will not clear the guilty, that, that sin will be paid for. But then on the other hand, you have a God who's gracious, who's slow to anger. He's merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He's gracious where he gives us what we don't deserve. He's patient with us. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that word for steadfast love there is the Hebrew word hesed, which is a word that's sometimes translated loving kindness. And it's a covenant love. It's the kind of love that you pledge on your wedding day. It's a love that commits yourself to a person. It's kind of a combination of love and loyalty. The author Paul Miller calls it one-way love, love without an exit strategy. When you love with that has said love, you bind yourself to the object of your love, no matter what the response is. You will love them. And that's what God announced he was like when he showed his glory. And so here's John in John chapter one, thinking about the word who became flesh, and he says, we saw his glory there. We saw it. He, he was full of truth, but also full of grace. That relentless love of God has come after us. He came and took on flesh so that he could pursue us, so that we could be, be forgiven. His loving kindness is in full effect in Jesus Christ. So there we see his glory. We see his glory in that even though he was born in a lowly manger, he actually went to an even lower place when he grew up and went to the cross. And when he went there, he took on himself the sins of all who would ever trust in him. He died to pay the price for them. Scripture says he became sin for us who knew no sin so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. He took on our guilt and he died so justice could be done. And he doesn't clear the guilty, he stands in the place of the guilty so that their guilt could be fully removed. And then think of this grace, he makes this offer that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. What kind of loving, gracious God is that? That's why John looks at the Christian story and he says, we saw his glory. That's where we saw it. And also just think of the grace that he would ever add humanity to himself. Think of how much dignity that adds to humanity. And there's already dignity in every person because everybody's made in the image of God. But for God to come and, and move in and to become one of us, all the more. 
about 10 years ago now, I went out to officiate my youngest brother's wedding in uh, New Canaan, Connecticut. And they rented a venue called the Waveney House, which is like this huge mansion on a huge estate. And it was beautiful, it was amazing, like the place kind of had its own glory. And then when we were there, I learned that that house was the childhood home of Christopher Lloyd, the actor, um, Doc Brown from Back to the Future. And, and just kind of knowing that that famous person once lived there changed the place a little bit. It brought kind of a different sense of honor to the place. You felt a little bit more special that you were like hanging out in Christopher Lloyd's house. Um, we'd go around, you know, and we'd, anytime you flip a light switch, you make a joke about 1.21 gigawatts. Like the whole place is different because Christopher Lloyd grew up in that place. And, and it's not that Doc Brown is all that big of a deal, but just the fact that he did live there did change the place for us. And so how much infinitely more is there new dignity brought to humanity knowing that God lived here? Like he was one of us. He took on flesh like this. He experienced all of this. He subjected himself to human limitations. The whole human experience has changed because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God was here. By taking on flesh, it's almost like Jesus enchanted the whole human experience and brought so much more meaning and so much more dignity to humanity, which, which started at a high point already. So we see his glory in that he came to dwell among us. We see his glory in that he came full of grace and full of truth. We also see his glory because Jesus being present with us makes God known to us. Look again at verses 16 through 18. It says, from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Scripture says in a number of places that, that the whole fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. Jesus wasn't half God and half man. He was all God and all man. Colossians 1.19 says, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2.9 says, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so this means that if we want to know what God's like, the place where we can know that the most clearly is in looking at Jesus. The book of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter one, verse one, it says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he says, God spoke to us in his son. Jesus came as the ultimate and final message of God to us. That in Jesus, we have an exact imprint of the nature of God, just like a face is stamped onto a coin. And so if I want to know what George Washington looks like, I, I can look at a quarter because his face is stamped there. If we want to know what God is like, the place we look and see that the most clearly is in Jesus. And it's true, we can never know God fully because he's infinite, he's far above us, but we can know God truly by looking at Jesus. And this helps get so many of our questions answered. Like we wonder, does God love us? He took on flesh and dwelt among us. That's gotta be an awful lot of love. Is God willing to forgive? He went to the cross for us. Would God ever tell me that I'm wrong? 
Jesus did a lot of that too. Will, will God lift our guilt? Well, again and again in the story of Jesus, sinners of all sorts, with God right there among them, would come to Jesus and he didn't reject anyone who repented and came to him. He looked at people who were sinful like us with compassion and he forgave. And then to make it real specific, what about me? With my specific resume, will God accept me if I turn to him? Well, can you think of a single time where Jesus rejected anyone who truly repented and came to him? I mean, it's absolutely true. He, he would accept none of the proud who refused to repent. He wouldn't accept anyone who thought that they were righteous on their own and they didn't need him. But every single person in every single gospel story that came to Jesus broken received forgiveness. Jesus is, is God among us and he shows us what God is like. And so if you wonder if God will accept you when you're broken and weary and guilty, read what Jesus did when he was here. That's what God does. And if you wonder where you can find peace and love and fulfillment, well, read about what Jesus was like. And ask yourself the question that if God is like that, is there any question about whether the fact, about whether he is the one that my heart's looking for? When we look at Jesus, the word made flesh, we see the glory of God. And this really matters. This really matters because ultimately we're only Christians if we see the glory of God in Jesus. In the stories of the Bible, the people who didn't see the glory of God in Jesus, who didn't believe that he was who he claimed to be, they were people who were lost. The people who didn't see his glory or the people who refused to see his glory, they missed a relationship with God altogether because there is no other way. In fact, that the heart of saving faith is seeing the glory of God in Jesus, knowing that he is full of grace and truth. And if you look at Jesus and you see the glory of God there, then you can be forgiven and saved. But if you look at Jesus and you don't see anything much, if your response when you see Jesus is just kind of meh, or he's boring, he's inconsequential, he's probably not divine, and then we don't know God at all. We can only know God in Jesus. And if Jesus is glorious to us, then, then we can know him. If Jesus isn't glorious to us, then we don't know him at all. This should also matter because looking at the glory of God in Jesus is profoundly transformative for us. This is, this is big. This is how we change, and this is how we grow as Christians. Look into sec, listen to 2 Corinthians 3, 15 through 18. It says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So we've seen his glory and we're transformed into the same, same image. Seeing the glory of Christ transforms us into the image of Christ, which means that celebrating Christmas the right way should make us more like Jesus. I mean, look at where we saw the glory of God. When God stepped down and he took on humanity, when the high and mighty one humbled himself and made himself low, we as Christians all agree that that's where we saw his glory. We saw his glory in his self-humbling and his becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And seeing that glory transforms us 
into the image of that glory. So how does it make any sense, for example, when we're proud? I mean, if the truest place that we see the glory of God is when he humbled himself and took on flesh, then why is our goal for ourselves like this totally different kind of glory? Like, why do we desire to be such a big deal when we've seen his glory and and his glory is on full display when he went to the lowest place? If real glory, the kind of glory that saved us, is going low to love and serve, then why does the glory that we're striving for look like we're just trying to win arguments on Twitter? Just trying to be a big deal? Just trying to exalt ourselves? We're just trying to be right? If the greatest glory of God was on display when he laid down his rights and freedoms, then why are we so obsessed with ours? Why do we think of those things before we think of love and kindness toward others? And wasn't he most glorious when he gave up those things for us? So what kind of glory are we going after? We've seen his glory. But so often what we're striving for is not what Christian glory looks like. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He says, who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? Whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger. Whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high. Whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. So if we see the glory of God in the lowliness of Christ, then we shouldn't be afraid of lowliness ourselves. In fact, we should kind of be striving for it. Humble service and love, that's that's what God's glory looks like. And if we're going to worship him and be transformed into the image of his glory, then that's what we'll look like more and more. And our prayer for our church in, in the years ahead in this new place is that the glory of this place would be the glory of the Son of God who came and took on flesh and dwelt among us, who died on the cross to pay the price for the sins of uh, of anyone who would believe in him, who rose again to conquer death, and who offers to anyone who will turn to him on his terms, who will repent, repent of self-righteousness, repent of sin, repent of idols, and turn to him and believe. He offers forgiveness and salvation and freedom from all of that. And then we want this to be a place where in the years ahead, he's, we make so much of Jesus and his true glory that as a congregation, we look more and more like him. People who go to low places to serve and to love, not for our name, not for our renown, not for the name of our church, but so that the name of Jesus could be made much of in Rochester and so that 100 years from now, they won't be able to look back and tell the story of Rochester without telling the story of Jesus. So let's pray. Well, Father, we have beheld your glory in the incarnation of Jesus. But we confess that so often we act like we haven't seen it. We act like we haven't seen it when we carry our guilt and we think there must be some other way of making our guilt go away. Almost like what you've done for us that was so glorious is not enough. We act like we haven't seen your glory when we strive for a glory and autonomy that look different altogether than the glory of Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you showed us what glory is. 
Thank you that you humbled yourself and poured out your life so that we could be forgiven and live. Thank you for the glory of your gospel that we can only be forgiven in you. And Holy Spirit, we just pray that you'd help us to believe these things. Help us to believe that the incarnation of Jesus is the place where we see glory. And we pray that it would shape us and change us into a glory like that that goes to a low place and serves. Change our definition of glory so that it's not that we win. It's not that we have our our maximum freedom and maximum rights. It's not for me to be the biggest me possible. But real glory is going low and loving and serving so that the name of God can be lifted up. So work those things in us and we pray for these things in Jesus' name.